I've been married over 13 years, and uh, what I've learned, and, and not just about marriage, but just in general, if you want to make someone really uncomfortable, uh, if you want to offend someone, um, you talk negatively about this. You talk negatively about their body, okay? Um, I mean, I, I can remember a few instances where uh, my wife said something to the effect of, hey, uh, when was the last time you went to the gym, you know? And, um, and I was like, oh, well, you know, that, that's funny you ask. And, and initially, you're, you're like, you're not seeing it, right? Initially, you're like, oh, that's an innocent question. But then, right, this has happened to you, okay? You're, you're down in the bathroom, and you're like, ah, oh, okay, all right. Like, maybe she saw, maybe she saw a little extra LBs back there. You know, like, like what, what is she really saying, right? Um, if you were to walk up to a random stranger and comment negatively about their body, my guess is that's not going to go well for you. You know what I'm saying? So, so... If you want to make someone uncomfortable, okay, you, uh, you walk up to them and you begin to talk uh, in a negative tone about their body. If you want to make someone uh, even more uncomfortable, you talk to them about this, okay? You start talking about sex with them, right? Okay? So, so if talking about their body wasn't uncomfortable enough, then you bring up the topic of sex, okay? And again, I know like in the church, uh, some of you... Some of you maybe grew up in the context where even putting this on the screen would have been blasphemous. Um, you know, like some of you are like, honey, get the car, you know, like we're out of here. Um, that's not going to be the case tonight. Um, but, but, so, but some of you guys have that kind of uh, aversion to this topic. And again, it, it's very, very personal. It is a personal uh, thing, but it's become almost taboo. Uh, in the Christian church community. Now, if you want to make someone really, really uncomfortable, next slide, you combine the two, okay? So you, you start talking about the body and the sex, and, and, and now things get really, really interesting. Well, it just so happens that in the beautiful text that we're going to study tonight, guess what? It's both of those all in one, okay? This is like, this is like every person's dream, right? Okay, so three weeks ago, incest, Last week, lawsuits. Tonight, the body and sex, okay? Like, what a, what a pattern. What a rhythm, right? Okay? Now, uh, some of you, okay, you, you, you see uh, things like this on the screen. And it instantly, it instantly, because you're predicting of where we're going, it instantly begins to bring uh, shame and condemnation. It's why the church is been distant at times of talking about it. They didn't uh, want to offend. Uh, they didn't want people to feel shameful. And so uh, instead of helping them grasp the depth of the gospel that breeds and covers grace over every sin, instead we, we've kind of like, you know, stepped to the side of these topics. I'm going to pray right now that as we wrestle with some very difficult text, some very difficult direction, that will certainly hit home with every single person here tonight. I pray that every believer can hear the word of God tonight through the spirit that's inside of them with a massive tone of love and grace. I can't make that happen for you, but I'm going to pray that it be so. And I pray that every non-believer that is here, every person that's come here curious, uh, maybe people that have been dragged here, right, by family members or friends, you're like, you got to come check this place out. And, you, you know, you've kind of come in here digging your heels in. 
Listen, I, I just, I want to I wanna welcome you into a very real and vulnerable conversation. My guess is you're already drawn in a little bit, right? My guess is I didn't know we'd be talking about sex tonight. Okay, right? Like, um, I'm going to pray tonight, though, that you, as we journey through this, would come with a very face-to-face encounter with the living God who is gracious, merciful, loving, and will extend all of that to you as you call on his name tonight. So I'm going to pray that, and we're going to dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 to 20. Let's pray. Come on. So, uh, Father, I just I pray that you will speak words tonight that will only be yours. I have no desire to um, shape any of those things in the way that I could or would want to. And so instead, Father, I pray that you would, you would speak, that you would communicate through your scripture. And that every single one of us, God, who come in here with a litany of a past of sexual sin or even present, Father, uh, I pray, God, that we would welcome the grace that is ours. And that we would leave here not just forgiven, but forgiven and changed. So Lord, we bask right now in the reality of forgiveness. And we're grateful for it. We desperately need it. So God, shape our hearts and our ears and our minds. In your great and holy and awesome name. Amen. So open your Bibles to a very lighthearted text. um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse 12. I want to read it in its entirety. Uh, before we break it down, because I feel like as we read this holistically, it will give you a little bit of a direction of where we're going. Many uh, theologians and commentators say that this is one of the most confusing passages that Paul writes in all of his writing. Um, I, I don't necessarily agree with that, but there's certainly some interesting pieces to this. So let's begin here, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. In quotations, all things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful, he says. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body, he says, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise up by his power. Raise us up by his power. Uh, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, right? And again, like I know like uh, some of us have grown up in contexts where where passages like this are like, listen, let's just not say prostitute in the church, but it's right here in the Word. It's right here. So we'll wrestle with it tonight. We'll process through it. Verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become, Scripture says, quoting Genesis 2, one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual morality. Every other sin a person commits is, in, uh, is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that, the, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, let me remind you of Corinth. Temples... Okay, worshiping pagan gods. And the thought in Corinth, and you guys remember it was on an isthmus, so it was two ports on both sides. These temples, and one of them being a temple of Aphrodite, the thought was that at night these 
temple prostitutes would go out into Corinth and prostitute with those not just who live in Corinth, but who those who are uh, staying just for a few days. So that's the culture. It's an overly sexed culture. Uh, it's a culture dominated by immorality. And, and, and just so we're on the same page, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago and again last week. Biblical sexual immorality is any kind of sexual act outside of one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. Anything outside of that, biblically, is sexual immorality, all right? So now, let's try to get a grasp on what Paul is teaching here, because the teaching is so insanely beautiful. Verse 12. The quotes are key. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me again, but I will not be dominated by anything. Now, the quotes are a couple different things. Number one, I think that they were a teaching uh, that Paul probably taught at some point, okay, when he was in Corinth, preaching to Corinth. But I think what's happened is this has become an out-of-context slogan in Corinth. Let me give you an example of maybe in our context. So if all of a sudden I, I began teaching the Scripture, okay, and there's plenty that would communicate this, that uh, let's just go with the Ephesians text, right, that the husband is the head of the wife, Okay, is the leader. And we started delving into that and teaching that. And then if, like, if we as a group took that teaching and made that a chauvinistic, arrogant kind of leadership, and that kind of became our like, slogan, our mantra, we like, beat our fists in the air with that, you know, that, that kind of chauvinism, the husband is the head of the wife, we would be taking something that is biblical, distorting it, and making something now that has become ours and not scriptural at all. That's what's happening. Okay? Paul has left. They've taken pieces maybe of his teaching or potentially they've just created their own. And now Paul puts in quotes those slogans. Okay? All things are lawful for me. And then he combats it with a different kind of teaching. Okay? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are what? What's the word? Helpful. Well, he's pointing to freedom in Christ. So as you come to Christ, the scripture says that we have been now set free. Set free from the law, as it were. We've been set free from the bondage of our sin. We've been loosed. The noose is gone. Okay. Uh, and so uh, we can take the context of all things are ours in Christ, which we've just recently learned about, and then we could, we could sh shift that and twist that and begin to take our Christian liberty or our Christian freedom loosely. Right? It would be like, hey, look, in Christ there's nothing biblical about drinking. And then we could take that, which is a biblical teaching. There's nothing biblical about, about not getting, or about getting, there's nothing biblical about not getting drunk. Okay? That's like triple negative there. In other words, scripturally we're called not to get drunk, not, not to drink. Okay? We could take that teaching and then all of a sudden we could get very, very, with a loose liberty kind of tongue, say, yeah, but I don't know. Like, we can, we can certainly press the envelope with that, okay? That's what Paul is saying. Like, look, look, you cannot take advantage of the liberties and freedoms we've been given in Christ. So then he repeats, again, all things are lawful for me, and now a different kind of teaching, but he said, I will not be dominated by anything. Every single person in here who has ever struggled with any kind of sexual immorality, you know how utterly dominating it can be. Uh, 
before we uh, begin relationship with Jesus. And for some of us who are in it right now or who can remember it in the recent past, after Christ has done a work in our life, the sin of sexual morality can be insanely dominating. Let's say it this way. Next slide. Sin dominates. The Greek word really means has power or authority. Sin dominates or has power over you when you are convinced you need it to live, experience joy, or have comfort. And that's the lure of not just sexual immorality, but but, uh, sin issues that have to do with the body. We convince ourselves that we have to have it. If we don't indulge in this way, I'm not going to be comforted. If I, if I don't give in to this a specific kind of, of indulgence, then I'm really not going to be able to experience joy. We convince ourselves of that. And when you're convinced of that, you are dominated, powered over, authoritied over by sin. Uh, this is real to uh, many of you because you know exactly what this is like, what this feels like, what this... Uh, experience is listen is is there anything that creates more desire to hide than this reality you know you, you convince yourself that you need these things and then and then you grab them and you indulge in them and you pursue them and then it doesn't provide again and then somehow you with no confidence in what Christ has done, you find yourself hiding again only to step out of the hiding to try it again. And there you find yourself because again you've convinced yourself if if I do not uh, do this, if I do not pursue this, if if I don't give in in this way, like I, I cannot and I will not be comforted, have joy, experience life. And this constant pattern of sin and hiding and sin and cowardice and sin and shame and many of you tonight like blanketed with heaps of guilt and condemnation that you feel like you can never get out of Um, so when it comes to sexual morality and teachings on sex what I've learned is that we as believers um we kind of, we, we want to like, we want to pull through and we want someone just to like shape us and, and show us a, a six step, you know, sexual health plan. But Paul tonight is going to take a very different approach and it's going to be one that you're not expecting. Okay, so let's keep going. This sin, he says, I will not be dominated by anything. Now again, quotes in verse 13, look at this. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Now, this slogan, okay, must have been made up by Corinth. And, and essentially what's happening is they're like, they're like, but Paul, like, like we've got a body and God has given us sex, so what's the big deal? Just like food is for the stomach and stomach is for the, is for the food, the body's for sex, sex for the body, so we, we, like we figured it out, Paul, okay? It's always interesting to me when people say that Sexual morality is getting so much worse. Listen, do you have any idea what was going on in Corinth? Listen, I went, when I went to Israel, okay, and I saw some of the Roman bathhouses 2,000 years ago, do you know what was going on, okay? 
They would go to bathe as a community in a, in a public bathhouse. And then on a daily basis, this would turn into a massive uh, cesspool of sexuality. Oh, but we're so much worse today. Maybe, the, maybe it seems like in the, the acceptance of it or the grabbing of it, or maybe we could say the access to it. But my friends, the, like the, the sin is, the, is the, exactly the same that we've been battling with ever since the garden. Look, listen to this. We started out naked and unashamed. Then we had to put on clothes and we were ashamed. And now we find ourselves trying to get naked again. You guys know what I'm saying? Right? You know? And so it's this weird pattern, right? Like Adam and Eve completely naked and unashamed. Sin comes in. They have to clothe themselves and hide from the Lord. And now we find ourselves in this weird, like, we just want to be naked. Okay? And that hasn't changed since sin entered the world. Okay? So, Paul, like, what's the big deal? Food's for the... Food's for the stomach, stomach's for the food, like, like we're made for sex. Look what Paul says. And God will destroy both one and the other. Notice that's not in quotes. That's not the Corinth slogan anymore. That's Paul. It's the Lord. And God will destroy both one and the other. Beautiful lyric, beautiful words. Listen to this. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but what? For the what? Come on. For the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, I really appreciate Pastor Lonnie um, because a Pastor Lonnie here in our body, he was a former police chief. Many of you guys know that. He's also a, uh, a woodsman, okay? So he just, he just killed an 11-point buck, okay? So I know for some of you that is a big deal. I don't even know what that means, okay? That sounds like a big reindeer. But anyway, he's, he also is very handy. So he has a lot of tools, all of which I do not participate in, okay? I don't know how to, I don't have many tools. But when we, when we got to this text, as we were talking about a staff, he, he came up with this beautiful image, and I want to share it with you now because it's coming straight from, like, the toolsman, woodsman guy. He's like, he's like you remember when, when you can't find your hammer and you have to use a screwdriver, the screwdriver in for a hammer? And we were all like, yeah, like, that's really good, you know? Because you can't find your hammer, and you're like, but you got to nail something in. And so what do you do? You're like, you get the next best thing, and it seems like the end of that screwdriver is going to work. Right? But it's not meant to be a, a hammer. It's meant to be a screwdriver, you know? And so you start hammering that thing, and then eventually what happens? The tool breaks. The tool isn't useful. Okay. And so we're all like collectively sitting around at lunch, and we all like had a, had a moment together. Like, bro, that was awesome. That was very profound, right? Like, like yes. Okay? We were not made for sexual immorality. We were made for the Lord. Our body was made for the Lord. Our body is to be used for the Lord. And not just that. What does the end of the verse 13 say? What? And the Lord for the body. Hello. It's this reciprocation, this, this mutual union. Our body made for the Lord and the Lord for the body. My question is, though, it certainly doesn't seem like that. Right? Right? Some of you are like, it doesn't seem like my body was made for the Lord at all. Here's some things that I think it seems like it was made for. Next slide. Uh, I think some of us feel like our body was made to be an object of abuse. And I mean this in every sense of the word. It's not just the abuse that some of you have experienced from another party. It's the abuse that we put on ourselves. Right? And that comes in all kinds of shapes and forms. So for some of you, it's been food. Uh, for some of you, it's been self-harm. 
Listen, there's not a week that goes by that I don't talk to someone who is self-harming. So if you think that that's not an issue, that that was something of the late 2000s, you're wrong. Okay. Uh, for, for, for others of us, this is, um, um, comes in forms of, of the sexual uh, devi- deviancies that we uh, do to ourselves or that we allow to ourselves. And again, for, for others, because of how we've been shaped by horrific things that happened to us as children, Okay, we, we believe, no, the, the, the Lord, this body isn't for the Lord. This body is for abuse. Does anyone, like I just, I hurt for every single one of us who find ourselves believing that tonight. I just, I, my heart like breaks open wide. We also, next, we think sometimes that our, our body is made to be objects of self-exaltation. It always is interesting to me when I go into a gym and all I see is mirrors all around. Have you ever stopped and thought about what the purpose of that is? I, for one, don't want to see that in the mirror. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, like I, I'm, I'm, yes, I went back to the gym, okay, the last, actually in preparation for this teaching, I'm like, all right, Lord, I hear you. I hear you, God. Seriously, I've been twice since I started studying for this um, today. Um, I'll go again after, right? Like in between services. Um, I, I don't, I don't want to see, I don't want to see that, but, but you go to the gym, right? And what do you see, right? I mean, I mean, there's, you know, the guy with the triceps that are hitting, you know, his neighbor. And what is he doing? I mean, he's just like, you know, just like every which way he can like flex those things to watch himself in the mirror. I, I, and I'm sure it can happen, okay? But I've never seen someone looking at themselves after working out all of a sudden fall to their knees in worship of the Lord. Have you ever? Like, I've never seen an instantaneous worship gathering happen while, while people are watching themselves in the mirror. What, what are they thinking? Oh, my goodness, my pecs are huge. You know, they're, they're thinking, oh, no, I need to work on that. You know, oh, no, that definition needs a, right? So, so for many of us, we view our bodies as a means of self-exaltation. We love when people say we've lost weight. We love when people say that we've gotten stronger. We love when people say, you know, our, our haircut looks nice. Whatever it is, okay? Uh, for some of us, we have that point of view. Next slide. Uh, for some of us, it seems like our body is used for comparison. I, I wish I could break every single person in this room of this, but the reality is the majority of some of your days are spent comparing every facet of your body with others, every facet. It's like you can't run away from it. Everywhere you look, everywhere you turn, it's just one more comparison. And it's interesting what that does, right? You like never, ever, ever find someone you never, ever find someone that, like, really makes you feel better about yourself. There'll be pieces about them, and then you find yourself damning them in your mind. Well, at least I got, like, that piece on that person. I mean, the hatred that ends up starting to come up out of your heart. It's horrific. Finally, some of us think that our body is for objects that are waiting on disease and death. Um, death and disease are all around us. For some of you, this is just like a vessel that is a means of like, you just look down at your clock every single day. Like maybe it's today that, that the Lord's going to call my number. Uh, Paul, um, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says something different. He says that our body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So what I started to, to, to step back from this whole uh, scripture and started to realize is 
I don't know that we have a good biblical understanding of the doctrine of the body. And, and by doctrine, I say a, a set of beliefs about what the body is, biblically. So if I were to go up to a random believer in the room, I would say, all right, what do you believe biblically is the doctrine of the body? I don't know that any of us have, you know, spent a ton of time studying it, but this whole passage is like one after the other statements about what the body is. So let's begin with this first statement in verse 13. Okay, number one, through Christ, my body is the Lord's, and it's meant for the Lord's work. That's what it's meant for. We say it here all the time that God does a work in us to do then a work through us. He doesn't call us to himself to high-five us and then send us on our way to live like hell. No, he calls us to himself so that then we can be an expression of the gospel to the world. We are a constant mouthpiece and life piece to what Christ has done. Our bodies for the Lord. Now, verse 14, he adds a whole nother component. Check this out. This is heavy. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now, this, is, this, kind of, this verse trips, trips you up a little bit. Uh, a confession. I have believed that certain components of my life that, that you like, when you die, you're like, this whole thing is done, done, over with, and like my soul you know, like, makes its way to heaven. Um, That is not biblical. Can can I just, and there's a lot of work here to be done, and we're going to do a lot of work when we get to chapter 15. But can I just show you, can I just show you one verse? Because as Paul's building a doctrine of the body, he's saying, like Christ has been raised, we will be raised also. But how? Check this out from Philippians. Check this out. Beautiful text. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, what? Transform our lowly, what? Come on. Body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. In other words, as we will study in 1 Corinthians 15, God does an amazing thing with this body, Okay? But there is strong, strong, strong evidence to say that that there is still some eternal usefulness as the the perishable becomes imperishable from 1 Corinthians 15. Now, can I explain fully that mystery? No. Okay? Some of you are like, well, I I hope not. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Some of you are like, no, but you don't understand. We will be like his. Okay? What that exactly looks like, what, what that is like, we're not exactly sure. But it points to a strong piece that somehow God will do a massive work of perfection, of transformation uh, as he makes the new heaven and the new earth, also raising these lowly bodies, transforming these lowly bodies. So let's make this statement. Next slide. Check this out. Doctrine of the body, statement number two, through Christ, my body will be raised. Which what? Elevates how I treat my body now. Now, am I saying that if there's biblical, uh, that there's biblical ramifications of how I treat my body now? I'm not saying that if I gain a bunch of weight or if I self-harm or if I'm involved in all kinds of sexual morality, that somehow, like, I'm going to know 
a record of those wrongs and glory. I'm not saying that. But what Paul is escalating is that, listen, like, your body right now is meant for the work of the Lord. So you cannot in any way, shape, or form diminish what you do with this body. We have this idea in the church, like, this is flesh and blood, like, it's, it's all going to be destroyed, it's all going to be gone. What Scripture points out, and again, just as we get to 1 Corinthians 15, heavy, heavy text about the resurrection body and what it looks like and what happens, is God does a reforming work. Again, I, 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 I want you to understand that what we do in this body now means something. And many of us are acting and living and believing that it doesn't. But Paul has a different way of communicating. He's like, no, no, you have to understand the, the doctrine of the body. What you do with this body now means something. It means something. So then he goes on to say this in verse 15. Do you not know? He says the statement six times in chapter 6. Do you not know, hello, that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? So if the mood in the room in Corinth wasn't heavy up to that point, all of a sudden as the orator was reading this letter to the church, can you imagine the heaviness on the room? What's happened is these Corinth Christians have said, yeah, but... We're freed in Christ, so we can just we can continue to act like we used to. It doesn't matter. Food for the stomach, stomach for the food, it doesn't matter. We can do whatever we want. Paul, we're freed in Christ. And so whether the issue really in Corinth was prostitution, or whether this is pointing to general sexual morality, what he's saying is, as you perform sexual immorality as a believer, Jesus is with you. Now, the lame version of that teaching is what I heard in youth group. Okay, computers started to come out. Hey, listen, here's what you should do. You should print out a a portrait of Jesus and put it on your computer screen. So every time you're tempted with pornography, you're going to see the face of Jesus, right? And so, you know, at first I was like, yeah, that's a really good idea, you know? And, you know, then it just kind of gets a little weird. You know what I'm saying? Right? And, 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 but the, the image of the teaching is precisely what Paul's saying here. Every single sexually immoral act that you have ever done as a believer, in those moments, did you, like, disjoin yourself from the body of Christ? Did like all of a sudden you say, all right, Christ, like now you're on the mantle. I got to go do some sinning. And when I feel bad, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to say I'm sorry. And then it's you and I again. You can't break a covenant you didn't start. And so if that's true, then every sexually immoral act that any of us in Christ have ever participated in, Jesus has been there. Uh, have you ever watched a movie with your parents and the movie characters were kissing and it got really awkward? I've now experienced that on the other side as a parent. Okay, we were, 
I forget what show we were watching. You know, it seemed like a harmless Disney Channel show. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, all of a sudden, the, the couple on the screen kiss, and all of my children, right, like, cover their face, right? And they're like, blankets over, you know? And I try every, like, all the time. I, I want them to catch Heidi and I kissing all the time, okay? And every single time they catch us kissing, right, they're always like, oh, you know? But, but the impact on them in the long term, seeing mom and dad be affectionate, it's huge. But that awkwardness, that you sense, it's not that Paul's trying to like just create an awkwardness in your heart as you think about sexually in, indulging in something, but he's, he's helping point to the, the truth, the reality. So let's say it this way, next slide. Doctrine of the body statement number three, through Christ, my body is a part of his. It's a part of his. We're joined together. And I think somehow in our minds that we've created these like, yeah, but not really, because I don't feel him, sense him. No, listen, like once you're grafted in the person of Christ, confess his name, like again, the scripture says, and what we believe here uh, at Matthias is, if saved, always saved. You can't break a covenant you didn't start. Once God says, you're my child, he doesn't orphan you. So he is always with you. Do you see Paul's strategy here? He's going to get to response. But he has to shift their doctrine. And I believe that for most of us, that's where we've erred in terms of sexual teaching. We've just wanted to get to the response while not having a shift of doctrine. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? We've just said, like, okay, like, I, I just, I need a change. Instead of just being engulfed in the word of God to reshape our understanding of truth so that then our response could be in response to the truth of, of the word. Do you guys see what I'm saying? So we like, we, we just want to run to response, just tell me what to do, instead of God shape what we believe. And then maybe in our belief and the shaping of that, you will do a massive work through your spirit. So he's not done, okay? Some of you are like, I wish he was. He's not, okay? Verse 16, shall we do that? He says, no, never. Verse 16, or do you not know, again, a mention of that, that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Genesis 2, 24. The first consummation of marriage. God makes Adam fall asleep. Okay, Polo pulls what? Pulls what out of Adam, right? Pulls a rib, makes the woe man, okay? And Adam wakes up from this thing and He's like, whoa, okay, this is good, you know? And the two become one flesh. I never have to um, get very far when I'm talking with a couple who is not married and they can't seem to let go. So I'll be in conversations with a litany of couples throughout the years and it's clear that the couple is just in an unhealthy situation. Either they're unequally yoked or they're both believers that have just found themselves compromising. And I'll like step in, I'm like, why, what in, why are you guys still together? And then about the time I say that, I'm like, mm, you guys are struggling sexually, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, we are. Now, now I understand. 
Now I understand why it's so hard to walk away. Because you've become one flesh out of the covenant of marriage. And so your hope somehow is that maybe like this, this whole thing will turn around and then you've convinced yourselves that maybe God will like still get approval because we'll still get, get married. Listen, isn't it crazy how we convince ourselves of messages of the gospel that aren't the gospel at all? Maybe if we turn, then God will approve. In Christ, we are already loved. Like, in, there's nothing more or less that we could do to gain God's approval. In Christ, we are seen as sons and daughters. And yet we've convinced ourselves in these situations, maybe if I turn it around, maybe then, and so we'll, we'll stick with it, and then God will bless it. Here's the blessing, is all of that sexual immorality in Christ you are forgiven of solely, wholly, all of it, it's gone. It's gone. So all of the one fleshes that your life represents, current, past, present, in Christ forgiven. But you know, you know, you know the power of that union. So Paul's trying to shape the doctrine of the church in Corinth by saying this. Next slide. Through Christ, my body is sexually only for one, and that is my spouse. That's it. So seriously, I don't want to move on before... We're all together on this. Listen, please hear this. If we collected all of the sexual morality that this room represents, it would be pretty hefty, wouldn't it? We find out things about one another that none of us want to know. It would be a really, really interesting conversation. In Christ, forgiven. In Christ, you and I, from all of that past hurt, pain, bad decisions, compromise, in Christ, we stand in grace. And I'll guarantee you that the enemy will do whatever he possibly can to make sure you believe the lie that you're not. Remember that? Remember that? That hurt too much. That caused too much pain. Even Christ couldn't forgive that. That's too deep. Too many people got harmed in that situation. Forgiveness. Simultaneously, sexual sin has tremendous consequence, right? We're forgiven in Christ. It doesn't negate the consequences. Okay? Those of you that have been abused, you know that. The abuser can be forgiven and yet you will deal with the consequences for years and years and years. Some of you have, uh, in adultery and all kinds of other facets, have harmed your family and others. Forgiven in Christ, the consequences are deep and weighty. The consequences, though, listen, will never, in the eyes of the Lord, outweigh the cross, ever. Can we just share in that truth right now? So the consequences can't shape our view of forgiveness. We will walk through these together as a body. Okay. So our final piece of doctrine before 
before he turns to response. Verse 17. He says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes, and this is crazy, one spirit with him. If Paul can get one last doctrinal truth in front of the church in Corinth, he would say it this way in statement number five. Okay, look at this. Through Christ, my body is one with him through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I literally carry Christ with me. As we'll see here in a couple of verses, my, my body a, a temple for the Lord. Now when you put all these statements lined up together, next slide, when you put all of them up together, this is the doctrine that Paul has taught. Because he didn't want to get to any kind of response until the church in Corinth came to a solid belief in what biblical understanding of the body was. If he just said stop it and like slapped them on the wrist, right? If he just like kicked them, you know, kicked them around a couple times and said, hey, I hope you guys figured out. No, 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 no. The beautiful piece of God's word is that it's true, it's rich, it's living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. And so as he shapes their doctrine, then he says, hello, this, verse 18. Let's read it together, just the first four words. Come on. Flee from sexual immorality. The Greek word for flee is uh, kind of funny to me. It's, uh, it's fugo. Okay, it sounds like fire, okay, which maybe is appropriate in some regards, okay? But fugo, so phonetically, F-E-W-G-O, okay, phonetically for like the, the layman Greekist, okay? So it's interesting, right, that the Greek word for flee is fugo, and I, I certainly think that that's the situation. Few flee. Few go. You either flee or you flirt. That's it. That's it. We all, know, we all know where flirting goes and gets to. Okay, what story comes to mind when you think about fleeing? Come on, what story comes to mind in the Old Testament? Maybe a little Genesis up in here. Come on. Yeah, Joseph, right? Okay, beautiful, beautiful woman. And our brother just absolutely turns on a dime and flees. Now he he, he gets caught because she deceives him. But hey, how about our good buddy David? What happened? Did he flee or did he flirt? He flirted. And he indulged. But yet another proof of God's forgiveness. So the scripture says, Paul commands, encourages, you run. You all know what happens when you flirt. Maybe I can just toe the line. Maybe I can look at just one site and it's not going to lead to more. Maybe, maybe I can just send kind of one of suggest, just one suggestive text to you know, spark the fire a little bit, but it really won't, it really won't go farther. I mean, listen, think of the natural progression of the relationship that some of you guys you know, have been in before, right? Okay, like, like it starts, in, and I remember when, when Heidi and I were dating, okay? And I mean, just, just to look at her was crazy, right? And you guys remember like the eye contact thing, you know? And we would make eye contact and then, you know, she would like bat her beautiful little eyes at me, you know? And, and many of you guys know our story. I told her we were going to get married on our first, first date, okay? And so it worked out for me. Again, I never encourage you just to follow suit, but it went well. Actually, it was second date, either one. Both, both are, it's all good. 
And, and, then, and then what happens, right? Like just to be near her then. Right? So I like kind of scoot in. And like you guys know the feeling, right? Like all the butterflies, like everything in you just like sitting by her. You know? And then the very first, the very first time we ever held hands, okay? You, I was doing, we were doing like the blanket over us thing. You know, and you kind of like put your hand underneath because you don't want your parents to see. You know what I'm saying? Right? But seriously, the first time I remember holding her hand, I mean, it was like, it was, it was, it was unbelievable. Right? And then you guys know as temptation works and as temptation continues, like it, it, it asks and beckons for more, it seems. Okay, thankfully Heidi and I stay pure until our wedding day, but... But for many, that wasn't the case because you kept flirting, you kept flirting, you, it had to get to another step, it had to keep going and keep progressing. So in response to the belief of the doctrine of the body, because the body is all of these things, unified with Christ, made for the work of Christ, then my friends, flee from it, run from it. You can't flirt at all. Flirt even for one second, you know the possibilities. And listen, every single one of us in this room are five seconds away from devastating sexual morality. Every single one of us in this room. And if you don't think that's you, you need to wake up because maybe it will be you sooner than later. Okay. He says, flee from sexual immorality. His response truth gets even heavier. Look at this. Every other sin, every other sin, that's a bold statement, a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body, and we've just learned what the body is. It's Christ. Do you guys see how he's built this? This is brilliant stuff. Okay, normally when, it, when you come to teachings about sex, it's you need to stop being naughty, stop being bad, turn and repent. But, but Paul has done a wonderful, wonderful job of shaping our belief. So then when we get to passages that say, look, now this is a sin committed against the body, and the body we now know is Christ and made for the work of Christ. Or verse 19, he goes on, do you not know that your body, his last mention of that in chapter 6, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? He says, you are not your own. And every facet of flirtatious pieces of our desire after sexual morality is to feed what? Ourselves. I need more comfort, I need more joy, I need more life, I need more excitement. Maybe if I can just have one more thing. But Paul reminds his readers and us many, many years later, you're not your own. This whole thing that you think you're feeding, you're actually feeding something that isn't even yours. The beautiful thing about verse 20 and how verse 19 and 20 Coexist is I've taught verse 19 and 20 a whole lot of ways. But now in the context of this passage, verse 20 is unbelievable. Look at this. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now I have used you were bought with a price all the time, every which way. I've cut it, sliced it, communicated it, preached it. But now all of a sudden, everything comes together. You were bought with a price with what? 
Next slide. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat. This is what? My body. Paul says, glorify God with your body. Your body is Christ. He says, you were bought with a price. And now I understand exactly what that price is. You see, as Jesus becomes the image of the invisible God, Colossians says, and he takes on flesh and blood, he takes on what? Bodily form, fully God and fully man. What was he here to do? Well, glorify his father, be obedient even to death, death on a cross, Philippians says, to do all of those things. And one of the beautiful byproducts is to show all of us what it looks like to glorify God in our body. So he took on flesh and blood. He took on body. So that we could watch a real life example of what denying yourself and taking up your cross and flesh and blood looks like. Now, there personally are a lot of ways that I abuse my body. I've confessed before that I struggle with food. Okay, I've confessed before that though being an athlete for many years, I've neglected exercise. Certainly all kinds of indulgences around all of us. Things that have become vices. And for every single one of us, there's been these moments where we felt trapped and we were wondering how we could get out. There's something in me that says that this sexually charged premarital relationship shouldn't be. But I don't know how to get out. I've already given so much up. Some of you are looking at pornography night after night after night after night after night. And you feel so incredibly trapped. It's like a drug. If you don't have it, then you don't, you don't feel that, that few seconds of fulfillment. It's created all kinds of tension and condemnation. You feel trapped. Some of you have been struggling with all kinds of eating disorders on varied levels of it, both on the gluttony side and on the neglect side, and you feel trapped. I don't know how to get out of this. I don't know how to break through. And Jesus brings us to this point. It's through his body. It's through his body that all of a sudden what happens in our body begins to become an act of worship. You see, I, I think for many of us, we've come here night after night and we've just said, look, if we just make a few little changes, if we just change our behavior a few little modifications, then maybe, just maybe, change will come. And what does Jesus say? No, my body was broken. I, th I think some of us, night after night, right, we've, we've come here, we've journeyed with uh, friends and believers, 
If I can just, you know, like make these few little, little uh, uh, changes in, in my pattern, then, then no, Jesus says my body, my broken body. You celebrate this, you cherish this, you understand what this has done for you. And then freedom comes. So tonight for me, all of a sudden, this meal takes whole new meaning. As we share in the body and the blood of Jesus. So I think about tonight all of my friends that are here, every single one of you, and the freedom that can come in celebrating the work of Jesus in his body to free us from sin. I can picture in this room right now just the noose coming off. Freedom not just felt for seconds, but people that will be sitting in chairs right now like yours that are saying, God, that are crying out right now, God, please use me in my flesh now for your work. You're in me. You've done a work in me to do a work through me, so God, here. I feel battered and I feel torn and I feel abused and I feel messed up. I feel like there's no going back and yet Christ says, Listen, you don't understand, like, give me all of the abuse and all of the hurt and all the past and all the immorality and all the masturbation and all the looks at pornography. You give me all of that and it's washed clean. Now walk in freedom. Be an expression of the gospel, not an expense to it. The expense has been paid. You were bought at a price. Because of that tonight, every single person in this room, in Christ, can come to the table and celebrate the broken body of Jesus. So if you're a believer, this meal's for you. And maybe tonight, it will mean something brand new for you. Come here to the table and take a piece of bread off and dip it in the cup, both representing the body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, like only you can right now, I pray that my friends who are here battling and struggling, caught and trapped, I pray that right now, not on their own efforts or because they try hard enough, I pray that they would rest in you. Pray, God, that they would celebrate what they have in you. I pray that you would heal the wounds that remain gaping wide open. For my friends, God, that have come here tonight curious or wondering, maybe wondering even why all of the, the sex really hasn't provided them anything distant from you, I pray, God, that right now in this moment that that they would hear you calling their name. And that they would call on yours. I pray for salvation tonight, God. I thank you, Father, that tonight we can come to the table in your broken body and in your shed blood clean. I'm thankful, God, that we can come clean. 
stir us by your truth and welcome us again. Respond when you're ready, church.